Hello and welcome to the EMG Health Podcast with me, your host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia. Today's a real buzz for me because I get to share a wonderful friend with you, Professor Stephen Wexner. He and I have been friends and collaborators for many years, and he is a total delight. And he's joining me from Florida. You know, I could spend the next 40 minutes just listing his titles, and his CV is longer than most novels. But in summary, he's an internationally renowned colorectal surgeon, an inventor, innovator, researcher, teacher, an all-round good guy. Steve serves as chairman of the Department of Colorectal Surgery at the Cleveland Clinic, Florida, and is professor of surgery at Ohio State University's titular Wexner College of Medicine. I believe no relation. He also holds numerous other honorary chairs, and I mean numerous, all over the world, China, Russia, Japan, everywhere, countries I haven't even heard of, and more honorary titles and societal memberships than I can shake a stick at. By background, Steve obtained his bachelor's degree from Columbia University in New York, his medical degree from Cornell, and undertook his surgical education in New York with further colorectal board certification after training in Minnesota, which is, of course, a very famous center. He's delivered every named lecture you might think of, published hundreds of peer-reviewed manuscripts detailing his research, written numerous chapters and books, and even graced my feeble offerings over the years. Steve has served as reviewer and editor for countless journals, been in leadership positions with many societies, including serving with honor as president for the biggest and best, and is widely sought after for his perspectives on every aspect of medical practice, research, teaching, and administration. He's a global thinker. And just as my late dad used to say, if you want something done, give it to the busy people. And Steve, in my opinion, is the busiest and has never, in my experience, said no. In fact, when I asked him about doing this podcast, as usual, the response came in minutes and was as gracious and enthusiastic as any communique from this amazing fellow. So, Professor Stephen Wexter, my friend, welcome to the EMG Health Podcast. Well, thank you so much, Jonathan. After such an incredible, glowing introduction, uh, you've left me almost speechless. Uh, I, I am truly honored to be with you today. I, I wish it were in person. Uh, I don't believe we've seen each other in close to two years, given COVID, which may be a record for the many decades in which we've collaborated and things on both sides of the Atlantic. Uh, but I'm deeply appreciative, Jonathan, of your inviting me. It's a delight. In fact, the last time we were together was in February 2019, wasn't it? 2020. February 2020, yes. When COVID was just kicking off, we were at your marvelous meeting, which we're going to talk about a little bit. And uh, some of our Italian colleagues were starting to get, you know, urgent messages to come home. So let's kick right off. I want to start with something you and I've discussed before. Your late colleague, David Jagelman, who I know was a huge influence in your life and not just professionally as a surgeon. So can you please share with our listeners, you know, a little bit about David, how he affected your perspectives? I, I had the pleasure of meeting him briefly, but you knew him very, very well, and I know how fondly you speak of him. Well, thanks very much, Jonathan. And and, and as you know, and as David knew, um, I'm an Anglophile, um, and uh, so was I was particularly honored when, when uh, David Jagelman, an Englishman, invited me to join him 
in Florida. It was October 1987 when Stanley Goldberg, you already mentioned the University of Minnesota. Stanley was my mentor uh, at the University of Minnesota. He introduced me to David and David said, Cleveland Clinic's going to be embarking on a venture in Florida at the beginning of 1988. Would you like to join me? And I said, absolutely. David was a true gentleman and he was a surgeon surgeon, a role model in every possible way. I enjoyed learning from him. Essentially, I got another five years worth of fellowship being his junior partner, his, his junior staff member, uh, until he unfortunately passed away in, in August of 1993 at the unfortunate, tragic uh, young age of 53. But in addition to David being an exemplary technical surgeon, he, he was a thinker. He started the Leeds Castle Polyposis Group, which is now the collaborative group of the Americas and, and internationally as well. Uh, really advancing, tremendously advancing polyposis. Uh, technologically, he was the only one of his generation who, along with me, and I was not his generation, picked up on laparoscopy. All of the other people of his vintage just said, this is not for me. This is, is absolute rubbish. I'm not doing it. David persisted and, and from 91 to 93 did perform laparoscopic colorectal surgery, probably the most senior person doing it at the time. Moreover than that, he, he was an absolute delight as a person. He, he was just such a, a humble, caring, empathetic person. So I enjoyed working with him, not only at work, uh, but also uh, at play. And we had lots of time together. Uh, in the U.S., in the U.K., and, and, and elsewhere, uh, enjoying each other's company. So I, I attribute him to really shaping me as the surgeon that I am, uh, and in large measure as the person that I am, the way I deal with employees, with colleagues, with patients, with patients' families, or many of those traits and attributes I aspire to be like he was. Yeah, you know, when we have those people in our lives and it's easy when everything's going well, isn't it? But it's when life is a little bit troublesome and you can channel someone who who has impacted you and and you think, well, how would they how would they feel if I behaved in this way or that way? And you know, the, the colorectal course that you established in David's honor, and I've enjoyed attending over the years, and when you were being too kind, participating as a member of the faculty. Tell the, the folks listening who do not know about uh, that colorectal course. Tell us about the forum and maybe what your proudest accomplishments are. Accomplishment. It's easy for me to say what your proudest accomplishment. I can't even say it. The best things you've achieved, uh, as well as calling it uh, calling it out for David. Well, one of the very first things we did on coming down to Florida, and, and just to put it in context, when we started here in Florida, uh, we came to an area of about five million people, give or take, in Southeast Florida, which includes Palm Beach, people have heard of, uh, Fort Lauderdale, which is called Broward County, so Palm Beach County, Broward County, and, and Dade County. Now, Dade had the University of Miami, but north of there, in the next two counties, there were no medical schools, no teaching programs, no residencies, no fellowships, no ongoing meaningful postgraduate education on a regular basis. So we decided to avail ourselves of that opportunity to, A, establish a training program in colorectal surgery, which we did in 1990. That became the first training program in any medical or surgical specialty in the entire area of these two huge counties, two of the most populous counties in the country. And we established this course as well. So the course also started in 1990. And it's not an original idea to have a course. Marvin Corman used to have one in Santa Barbara, and I believe uh, around January. And Stanley Goldberg had one in the, in the fall, uh, September, October in Minneapolis. 
but we had the advantage of capitalizing on the Florida sunshine in, in February when it was uh, half term in, in many places, uh, bank holiday weekend and others. And we just picked this mid-February weekend and we stuck with it. And one of the things that I'm perhaps most proud of with that course, and David did you know, co-chair it with me for 1990, 91, 92, and 93, because he was diagnosed just after the 93 course in early March. Um, one of the things I'm most proud of is we shifted the way faculty was regarded prior to that time. And I know this might sound totally alien to the younger uh, listeners today, but prior to that time, all of the faculty at all of the colorectal meetings were from the US, UK, Canada, Australia, New Zealand. Occasionally you get somebody from Scandinavia or Israel where English is you know, de facto almost a first language. But it was almost unheard of, if not completely unheard of, to invite somebody to share their knowledge when that somebody was coming from South or Central America or the Middle East uh, or Africa or Asia, Southeast Asia, not Australia, New Zealand. And we immediately set about in our very first program saying there are people with brilliant ideas, with great publications, perhaps not in English, but great publications, wonderful, serious things to teach. So we started inviting faculty from our very first course from all over the world. And I think that's a big part of why we did so well. It was different. People came to hear, well, what are they doing in China? What are they doing in Russia? How's this being done in, in, in Argentina or in pick your country? It doesn't matter, you know, Malaysia, Singapore. And so we had people coming from everywhere and the audience followed. And I must say that in our heyday, prior to 9-11 and, and changes in, in many other things in the medical industry world and funding of doctors to travel, we would get easily eight or 900 registrants every single year, year on year, big contingents, 60, 70% were international. We would have 60, 70 countries easily represented. And I remember one year, my dear friend, Jim Fleshman, who was the program chair for the American Society of Colonial Surgeons meeting that year. So it would have been in the latter half of the 90s. Uh, and Jim got up to the podium for his first talk and said, well, I'm program chair for the ASCS meeting this year. And I commend anybody who wants to come to a smaller, more intimate meeting, please come to the ASCRS. And that really was, was the case. Uh, the world changed. You know, our attendance went down to the 400s or so and stayed there for a very long time. Um, but the course maintains its integrity. And as, as you said, the, the, the change that I then did, which I'm also proud of, of course, COVID got in the way of it. Um, the plan was that in even numbered years, we'd have the course at the home base of some of our alumni. So we went to Jerusalem where we have uh, eight or nine alumni in leadership positions in Israel. And had COVID not hit, we would have been back in Florida for 2021. And then the plan for 2022 was to go somewhere else. And we had alumni express interest from Hong Kong, from Istanbul, from Cairo, from uh, Taipei, a variety of places. And we would have picked another. So hopefully we'll get back on that track uh, as COVID eventually hopefully uh, subsides, or at least we learn to live with it. Well, not just not just international faculty, and you're right, as someone who's been to your meetings, it, it is nice to not see, once again, the usual suspects trotted out on the podium. And in the introduction, I positioned you as a global influencer. And one of the things I also love about your meeting is you make it financially possible for our colleagues from less wealthy nations to attend the course. 
talk about how medicine can help the world understand the need for us all to be one people, which is, I would have thought has really penetrated people's skulls during this COVID pandemic. Yeah, I mean, that's something that I, I take quite seriously. Um, not everybody can avail themselves the opportunity to go to the US or UK for, for a meeting. And it's really nice to be able to have philanthropy to fund people. And, and uh, with the initially for the course, I mean, I've done this for training residents and fellows since we started here, relying upon generous altruistic friends to donate monies to be used to train people to, to come here to Florida and work with us in the department. Uh, but for the course specifically, um, my, my friends uh, Sandy Smith and Ellen K. Smith who are here down in Florida said, well, let's have this uh, surgical scholarship so people can train. And I must say for the Jerusalem meeting uh, with their seed money and then going around to many other friends, I, I believe we funded something like 40 or 50 surgeons from developing countries to come and take that course and, and learn from our, our faculty. So we had surgeons coming from Africa, Latin America, Eastern and Central Europe, Southeast Asia, places uh, you know that the World Bank classifies uh, as tier three or four in need of uh, assistance. And I'm delighted to be able to, to do that. And in fact, I must say that for Nigeria, we ended up during that meeting in Jerusalem establishing the Nigerian Society of colonorectal disorders, which is very active. They meet monthly, they're doing joint projects together, they're doing publications together, and, and it was formed due to philanthropy of, of friends of mine um, and, and coalesced and founded uh, during our Cleveland Clinic meeting in, in Israel. That's lovely. What a beautiful story at a time when we could all do with some beautiful stories. And so continuing on with the theme of the pandemic, it's it's impaired our ability to travel to conferences, to to conduct overseas training, or frankly, just to see each other. What, what are the pluses and minuses for clinicians in this new world order? And do you think the green agenda is going to start to play into whether or not we go back to pre-COVID travel behaviours? Well, I'm not sure it's the green. Well, it's a different kind of green. It's it's the <laughs> pound notes and the dollar bills, um, because people are realising it's, it's cost-effective to sit as we're doing today, uh, you know, we're 4,400 miles apart and yet we're having a great conversation. And if we had our cameras switched on on a different technological platform, we'd be seeing each other. And if we invited other people live, they'd be here too. So it is definitely far more cost effective to just have an hour set aside in your day or even the entire day rather than traveling somewhere. Um, and to, to the point I was making earlier of being able to educate and participate in the education of people from other areas of the world, it, it is unparalleled. I, I mean, I could never get enough scholarships for folks to go to meetings as can participate free in some Zoom program from the American College of Surgeons or from the Advances in Surgery Channel, which I do a lot of programs for them, where we'll have usually 30, 35,000 live attendees. My record is 52,000 live attendees from all over the world. And there are people who would not be able to go to these meetings. And now we can bring the meetings to them. And just like you said, you asked me would I appear. I said, of course, I've ended up participating in meetings in countries that I wouldn't necessarily have otherwise visited in person uh, in certain parts of the world. And now I'm happy to participate in their meetings uh, remotely. So I think a lot of that is is the 
silver lining in the uh, otherwise somewhat dark cloud uh, of COVID, that we're learning how to communicate with each other, how to collaborate, how to educate across time zones and, and geographic distances using electronic media. The green agenda I was referring to, obviously, was was thinking about should we be getting on airplanes? And so I'm sorry to belabor the point, but you know, as you think about planning meetings, what is going to, are people going to start saying, you know what, I, I've got to be aware of my carbon footprint. I'm not going to, I'm not going to travel. Anything's possible, but I, I must say, when you looked at the number of private jets that the, the news showed in, in the, in the climate conference, it was somewhat of a, an oxymoron. Yeah, well, that that is, of course, you know, what's that great line from Animal Farm? All pigs are born equal, some are more equal than others. Right. So, you know, I, I, I'm not sure how seriously everybody takes it. Of course, it's important, but it depends the importance of the meeting and the importance of being there in person. It also, you know, depends on how aircraft are, are configured in the future. And people are talking about much greener, forms of transportation. So it's in flux. And I suspect the younger generation are much more environmentally conscious than are some of the more senior people who are somewhat set in their ways. But I, again, I, I don't personally think that travel is going to return to pre-COVID levels very quickly. I mean, for one thing, every time we plan travel, something else gets, you know, another wave, you know, Delta gets in the way, Omicron gets in the way. So things are in constant flux and people keep pushing meetings back. In fact, I just saw that the right before I logged on with you that the Davos Economic Forum scheduled for mid-January is now postponed till the summer. So what did Yogi Berra, that famous Yankees coach philosopher, say? It's like a deja vu all over again. He also said, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. I loved it. Wonderful. Wonderful quote. My, my British friends, I had the pleasure of meeting Yogi years ago. And what a sweet and very funny man he was. Let, let's go back to, to some of the changes that happened. And I'd be interested in what you're seeing at your institution. I'm talking about clinical interactions, patients not coming in for routine of appointments or follow-ups, remote consultations or telemedicine. Is it here to stay? And what about those patients who've not been getting screening or diagnostic colonoscopies? You think we're going to see a deluge of later stage colorectal cancers? Um, yes, and I think it's more than colorectal. As as a member of the executive committee, the Commission on Cancer, uh, the latest estimates I've seen are something like one and a half million people had have had a delay in diagnosis, and that includes uh, mammography, that includes gynecologic screening, as well as you just said colorectal screening, skin cancer screening. I mean, there's a lot of screenings that were deferred. And people may well uh, indeed present later. And the problem is that as we add these waves and hospitals again throttle back on, on offering elective surgery, it just further delays it. Um, so I don't know where the end is, but it's it's not good for population health, certainly. Um, you also mentioned the bright side. So being able to have a remote consultation is great. And being able to chat with your patient uh, rather than having them fly into town for visit or even somebody local potentially with a simple question you can you can deal with it online that's not something with which people were comfortable pre-covid so that's that's a positive certainly remote consultation but delayed diagnosis is a a definite huge negative uh that, that's come out of covid and and again does not seem to have a finite uh, end date in other conversations i've had with 
focused on prostate cancer and breast, you're absolutely right. And, you know, it's going to change the utilization of health services. I think we're going to have to learn to be better. Of course, some of the telemedicine is beneficial. I've heard a pediatrician tell me they thought it's much better than having a screaming child petrified in their office and actually just interacting with them in their home environment, getting to know them and then meeting them to examine them. But but anyway, we shall see, I guess. So I'd like to talk a bit about leadership. You're a leader within your department, your institution. You've been the leader of professional medical societies. What lessons have you learned about leadership that you can teach to others? And frankly, why can't we get people like you to stand for national political leadership? I mean, if you could manage a bunch of surgeons, for goodness sake, I'm sure you could handle the United States uh, <laughs> House of Representatives or the Senate. Well, so a couple of things. Um, firstly, I actually come from a lineage of, of politicians, as it happens. Um, so while there's positive reinforcement, there's negative reinforcement. My uh, paternal grandfather um, and, and, and his, his parents emigrated here in 1883 from Krakow, Poland. And in fact, that's the link to Leslie Wexner, who endowed the Ohio State University College of Medicine, which you mentioned earlier. So there's a relationship, but it it's fairly far removed at this point because my great grandfather and his grandfather uh, were related and, and left uh, Krakow, Poland. They ended up in Columbus, Ohio, my family in New York. Um, so be that as it may, there is a relation there. My grandfather was um, undersecretary of, of, of labor for Governor Nelson Rockefeller in New York State in the 60s before he passed away. And my dad, before he passed away, for many years was the supervising judge of the Supreme Court for Nassau and uh, Suffolk counties, which is Long Island outside of New York City, those who know the geography. So I do come from a line of politicians, which is perhaps why I decided not to go into politics. Um, I like surgery. Um, and, it, you know, I, it's flattering that you say so, but I really enjoy what I do actually taking care of and operating on patients. Parenthetically, one of my alumni who you know, Badma Bashankayev in Moscow, was recently elected to the Duma uh, in Russia and, and is maintaining his surgical practice. However, he's only a few months into the job. So let's see. The important thing about leadership, and here's maybe where politicians get in trouble, though thankfully neither my dad nor my grandfather, and that is leading by example. That is having impeccable integrity. That is having empathy and being able to listen to people and being able to fulfill their mission, which may not be your mission. It may be in Congress, but you're representing people. And whether you're a department chair, whether you're a chief of staff, a job which I had here for 12 years, and, and now my much better half, Mariana Berho, is our chief of staff uh, for, the last, uh, for the last year. And, and uh, that type of leadership is based upon credibility. People relate. They say, okay, this he or she, they know what we're talking about because they do it. They walk that walk. They don't just talk that talk. Uh, and I think in politics, sometimes that can be difficult uh, to do. Uh, but in in local politics, as it were, it's fairly straightforward. You're a surgeon, so you need to care about your patients. You need to take the best possible care of your patients and their families. You need to be credible and have good outcomes with surgery, ideally the best outcomes with surgery. You need, if you're academic, to also be able to demonstrate how to do research, how to successfully publish, how to organize meetings, how to speak at meetings, how to help others. 
So it, it's a matter of really leading by example, and that's part of it. Another part, I think, is the ability to collaborate, the ability to say, okay, we have these strengths, but we have these weaknesses. Somebody or some other folks or some other group of groups, they have the strengths that we lack, so let's get together and figure it out. Or we all have these same strengths, so let's work together rather than working at odds, okay? So let's, let's collaborate. And an example I give there is the program which I was uh, privileged to be able to help start in the United States, the National Accreditation Program for Rectal Cancer, where I got leaders together from the Society of American Gastrointestinal Endoscopic Surgeons, the American Society of Colorectal Surgeons, the Society for Surgery of the Alimentary Tract, Society for Surgical Oncology, American College of Radiology, College of American Pathologists, with the American College of Surgeons and the Commission on Cancer. So you've talking about eight groups of, of individuals who are like-minded, but by working together, we can implement a program. So the ability to collaborate, I think, is another very important uh, facet of leadership. And you, know, it, you have to be responsive. Um, I've always prided myself, the only people who've ever left in colorectal or general surgery since we started and, and uh, since I've been chair the entire time, David passed away and one person retired. And that's the extent of it in, in, in 34 years, because I try and think what makes people tick? You know, what is it you'd like to do? What would you like to develop? So you find somebody's passion and you help them develop it. It may not be your passion as a leader. That's irrelevant. You have to find what makes them excited, what makes them want to get out of bed and come to work in the morning and make sure they're given every opportunity and support to succeed in what they want. I mean, that's a very important facet of leadership. And I think the longevity of, of the faculty and general and colorectal here attest to the fact that I've been you know, reasonably successful at fulfilling that goal and finding out what makes people tick and keep them ticking. Yeah, I think you make a great point that, you know, it's uh, walking the walk as well as talking the talk. Um, very often, I'm not going to mention any names, but I met with a very senior person in the United States leadership and was talked down to by someone who began to believe their own press, I think, and that's what happens. What's that old line? That power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Um, and being humble. And anyone who doesn't know their United States history should know that when George Washington became president, um, they wanted a title for him. And the title that was suggested was King. Right. He was the one that chose president because it just means the person who presides over a meeting. So... I'm sorry to say, Steve, I think you're underestimating. Getting eight disparate groups together and pointing in the same direction in medicine is one hell of an achievement. Good on you, mate. Thank you. Thank you. So I want to change tack a little bit. You're, you're very active on, on social media, and I don't mean posting silly photos and, on vacations. You use the platform in very responsible ways. We're hearing a lot of negatives about social media in relation to the youth, um, advertising and so on. Can you talk a little bit about the good it can do in medicine and how you use it? Yeah, and I think that's exactly, that's the only reason I use it. And I, I always like to attribute that. Like I, NAPRC was Feza Remzi, my, my former counterpart chair in Ohio, who said, you know, you really should do it. Uh, and in this case, social media was Fabio Patenti, now retired, one of my alumni who served for many years, our chief medical officer here in Florida. And Fabio said, you know, you really should get in social media because you can help spread the knowledge and that was 2012 and here we are almost 10 years later and yes I'm very engaged in 
pretty much every every platform. Uh, you know, Twitter is my main go-to platform, but certainly also uh, uh, LinkedIn and, and Facebook, all professional. Uh, Instagram, again, professional. The AS channel, which is in a way uh, social media, and, and and YouTube, largely through the, the American College Surgeons from the Frontline Surgeons Voices videos that I record, which are now probably somewhere between 200 and 250 uh, video interviews that, that are on YouTube. So I, I think it's a way to spread knowledge. And you're right. I don't put what I ate or, you know, that I went to the beach or, you know, went for a bicycle ride. I mean, everything is trying to transmit knowledge in some way, whether it's asking a question as a survey, whether it's trying to disseminate an article that's been published, whether it's in surgery that I'm one of the editors in chief or whether it's in another journal. I like it a lot as a vehicle for promoting my alumni um, when they publish, when they present, when they receive accolades, uh, spreading that word, congratulating them and, and letting them you know, bask in the glow of other people knowing about it. So I think it's a tremendous uh, tool, set of tools, really, because each one's a bit different uh, to disseminate knowledge and to engage people. And it, the other thing about social media, it really is the great equalizer, democratizer, perhaps is a better word. Because you and I both know that, you know, when we were young surgeons, we wouldn't necessarily have got up to the most senior people at a meeting and, and struck up a conversation with them, maybe, but perhaps not. Whereas in social media, residents, fellows, young faculty from around the world have no hesitation to participate in a discussion. And before you know it, you find somebody who's working in a place where they don't have a mentor and they kind of latch on to you and you're able to work with them on collaborative studies, uh, systematic reviews, meta-analyses, helping them design programs in their own institutions, all remotely, uh, all, all by, uh, by social media, that you form these bonds and these relationships transcends time. As long as somebody can communicate in English, it, it, it transcends other language barriers. Um, you know, in other words, like at a meeting where there's simultaneous translation, uh, that's gone. But but largely, it really makes everybody approachable and people work together better. Like I say, you do use it responsibly. And I have seen the Internet being used, especially during the last 18 months, two years with, with COVID, um, uh, as, a, as a great way of communicating. You've even got me doing it, Steve, and you, you're, you're the responsible one. So, Steve, you've been a prolific inventor, a sage innovator, and a very judicious investigator of things that are new. You're clearly very good at it, and you seem to love the process. Could you tell our audience about maybe one success and one failure and what you, what you learned from them? Yeah, I mean, the, the success is, and I can't go into the specifics of the device, but but the success is when you get a company to latch onto something and, and manufacture it. The failures far outnumber the successes, though. You have an idea, you may patent protect it, you may even make prototypes, and you find that despite what you think and your friends think, uh, your friends under confidentiality agreement or non-disclosure agreement, that when you go to the corporate world, they have different views and they don't really want to market it, no matter how good you think it is. And I guess my word of advice there is just don't be discouraged. I mean, not every idea is going to be the next bag of sliced bread or the next round wheel and just keep plugging away. And, and sometimes the best ideas come when you're not trying to think of an idea. Suddenly something pops in your head when you're lying in bed at night or 
driving in your car or sitting on an airplane and suddenly an idea pops down and just the precautions are immediately file a provisional patent that gives you one year of protection be as descriptive as you possibly can and try and make the uh, description as broad reaching as you can to protect yourself so if you think it's usable in a scenario think is it even remotely feasible in these other scenarios even if you can't make it work if it might work list those as well and then you given you've only got the one year you then need to start working on the patent don't discuss it or present it with anyone unless they're going to sign a confidentiality agreement with you because even the most innocent conversation and i've thankfully this has not occurred to me but it has occurred to friends where they've ended up in horrible lawsuits and accusations, um, not a very pleasant scenario. So just be, in fact, any company with whom you speak should be forthright enough to tell you, we're not even going to talk to you unless we have a non-disclosure up front, a confidentiality agreement, because we don't want to be in that situation where we're potentially going to be held accountable. You're going to accuse us of something. So, um, yeah, so that that would be my advice there. The success, I apologize, I, I can't speak about it. Well, no, no, that, that's all right. I was thinking more generically, just you know the the idea that someone in, you know develops something, you work with a company. It's, I think for people who haven't done it or are suspicious, as long as you follow the rules that you've set out, it it can be immensely intellectually rewarding. It can, of course, be financially rewarding. But the main thing is that you've you've done something that's changed the practice of medicine. Um, and and helped a lot more patients, and that's very satisfying, right? Yeah, a absolutely. No, absolutely. If you can put to practice, if you can reduce to practice an idea you have that may improve outcomes, that that's tremendous. That helps everybody. It helps you and it helps other people. It, it's a bit similar to teaching, right? Because if you take care of a patient, you're taking care of a patient. That patient's doing well. I mean, how many patients can any person take care of on a given day or in a given career? versus when you're teaching other people to adopt your methods and each of those people goes forth and takes care of their patients now you're you know it's like the giving a man a fish and as a meal and you teach him to fish and it's meals for life um and that i think is the point you know you give him or her education and he and she will go out through the world and and propagate uh the lessons and and, and in perpetuity keep going uh, the things you've done so more and more people are being helped and, and to, to a lesser degree that's true just giving lectures and showing demonstration videos but that's practical i mean not everybody can train in any ind individual place and in fact you know you, you mentioned before some of the issues of COVID and what's changed and we don't have the observership program uh, we've not had it during COVID. people can't just come and show up and hang about and see things because of uh, all of the COVID restrictions. I hope it comes back, but it's a tragedy. People cannot avail themselves of that education. Absolutely. Well, let's riff a little bit on the way that technology in our professional lifetime has made surgery less invasive, more precise, improved outcomes, reduced risks. And what do you think are the biggest advances you've seen in your career? And conversely, where do we need to do better? I'm thinking about things like laparoscopy, minimally invasive surgery, maybe tumor margin uh, identification. So what, what, are, what are the big advances and where do we need to do better, Steve? Well, num number one, you mentioned it, and that's you know, laparoscopy, but it's as part of minimally invasive surgery. So laparoscopy also became the impetus for other minimally invasive surgery. And you remember originally uh, Dave Ratner and others had as the, as the holy grail 
doing surgery through a natural orifice, mouth, anus, vagina, elsewhere, you know, natural orifice surgery, natural orifice transluminal endoscopic surgery, notes. Uh, and that was the initial holy grail. Um, and, and we still have it, but we realized it wasn't going to happen overnight. So laparoscopy, I think, was the biggest revolution in, in my career, but it led then to robotics and it led to transanal endoscopic surgery and transanal total mesorectal excision, you know, host of other improvements. So globally, I would say minimally invasive surgery for sure has just tremendously improved outcomes, short term in terms of pain and length of hospitalization, longer term in, in terms of things like hernia formation and bowel blockage and even cancer outcomes have been improved. So minimally invasive surgery for sure. And the second one is relating to the rectal cancer, the National Accreditation Program for Rectal Cancer, it's collaboration. It's the multidisciplinary team approach. You know, it's no longer that the surgeon, uh, he or she is, is the boss and everyone else uh, somehow just listens to what the surgeon says. Not in the least. It is a democracy where you sit with other groups and if it's pelvic floor dysfunction, maybe it's with urogynecologists and urologists. If it's inflammatory bowel disease with gastroenterology, imaging, and pathology. If it's with cancer, it's, it's with radiation and medical oncology, imaging, pathology, genetics, surgery, you know, people working together. I think th those are the two certainly uh, big advances. I think where we need to improve is making these things more cost-effective globally and teaching them more globally so that patients outside of the most developed countries all have access to the similar type of care because there are still places in the world where sadly minimally invasive surgery is not the standard because they just quite simply can't afford it and that's an area that we really need to work on our healthcare disparities and, and access to care that may also be true within developed countries in certain pockets whether rural or inner city, there may be limitations, resource restrictions. So we need to address those healthcare disparities. Well, my guess is that addressing them is is probably on your, your agenda. And if there's anyone who can get it done, you can. Steve, I like to ask all my guests some version of this question. If you came across a magic lantern, rubbed it and out popped a genie and granted you three wishes to make the world a better place, what would you wish for? Well, one I just mentioned, uh, Jonathan, and that, and that is the healthcare disparities. I, I would want to make it so that whether the surgeon is in central London or, or Miami or New York, wherever they are, they're going to get that same care wherever they are. That, that's number one, to somehow eliminate healthcare disparities, to, to bring it to the world. The second is more global and nothing to do with medicine, and, and that has to do with the incredible, unfortunately, divisiveness of society where prejudices and hate still prevail, despite the fact that we've matured and, and we see each other, um, that throughout the world, every day you open the news and it, there are wars going on and there's suffering going on because of prejudices, because of hate. That would take a super genie to fix that, but it uh, certainly would be a, a good thing if that could somehow be addressed, you know, that, that there's no reason because somebody looks different or believes in different things that that should incur the wrath uh, to the point of violence and, and death, unfortunately. So that, that would certainly be the, uh, the second one. Um, and for the third one, 
you know, I, I think that poverty, although that's part of healthcare disparities, but it's it's tragic to see that you know while there are people who are very well off and countries very well off, there's still a lot of people living below the poverty level around the world. And, and with the amount of GDP produced around the planet, it's just hard to imagine. There's no way to sort that out. Maybe if I went into politics, I could help or worked in the United Nations. But, it, you know, there's just it's, it's horrible that, you know, some people have opportunities that others could dream of, but will never have. So that, that would be my third. I forget who it was who told me this or who made this point, but we're now living in a world where we really have to be, if, if not just for ethical and moral reasons, kind to our fellow man and woman, but there's there's a, a knock-on effect. When you have people living in poverty and they're living in close proximity to their domestic animals and they're forced to eat bizarre forms of protein, you get pandemics. Right? So making the lives of people around the world better for very selfish reasons is the right thing to do, as well as it being the right thing to do. Professor Stephen Wexner, Steve, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today. And frankly, for all you do for our profession and the patients that we all serve, thanks so much. Thank you so much, Jonathan, for having me here today. It's been a pleasure and I look forward to it being in person with a big hug hopefully in the not too distant future i i hope so steve so make sure you send me your dates uh, when you're here and we'll 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 have some fun and uh, we'll talk into the early hours well folks that's it for today please remember to subscribe for our weekly podcast at emg health or wherever you get your podcasts and there are plenty of prior episodes uh, archived there so until next week this is your host dr jonathan sakia hoping that you stay safe Stay well and stay curious. Bye for now.